0: Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating, he's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown, the pig is at the Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the effort at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back! This could change
1: the sport! A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish!
0: This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan! It's Thursday, yes, it is. Hello, my friends. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number six. Today is a really big one because I'm interviewing somebody who I've been reading for, uh, got to be 15 years at this point. His name is Drew McGarry, and if you're a sports fan who also peruses the internet, he probably needs no introduction. I will give him one anyway. Drew made his name at Deadspin.com. He was a columnist or a blogger, whatever term you want to use, but very quickly he became, without hyperbole, one of the most prominent digital sports writers out there on that digital ether. He's an incredibly funny guy, uh, very open with his writing, very insightful, uh, completely engaging. Deadspin, of course, no longer exists, but luckily Drew, despite some close calls recently, does still exist. Uh, You can read his columns at Vice, including the mailbag column, which is always so much fun. He writes at Medium, various sports and political essays, and he's also an author, both of nonfiction and fiction books. And this month, he released the novel Point B which I just finished reading, really, really enjoyed. Uh, You can find that on Amazon. It's the story of a high school girl seeking revenge against somebody who has wronged her, but it's got sci-fi elements, there's teleportation. It's uh, an unbelievable page-turner. So check that out. Um, But yeah, as you see, Drew is somebody I've admired for a very long time. I even once went to see him do a reading in Chapel Hill, and I lurked like a creeper in the back of the room and never even said hello. Did not bring that up in our interview. So if he hears it now, I am completely exposed Uh, anyway, so it was a huge thrill to get to talk to him. Uh, the very idea of it made me nervous. Hopefully that doesn't come across. Hopefully I sound incredibly cool, but we will get to drew in one moment first though. And I know you don't want to hear this. I know you hate it. I know you hate me too bad. I'm going to talk about my Patreon again, but I'll be quick. Alright, the Apocalypse Sports Network consists of two podcasts each week, one like this where I do an in-depth interview with a subject like Mr. McGarry, another that comes out on Tuesdays, which is more like a variety show. It's got a bunch of guests, quick-hitting segments, we hit all the relevant topics in sports. I also write a blog each morning, Monday through Friday. Part of that is a recap of the night before, complete with jokes like I used to do it About Last Night at Grantland, if anybody remembers that anymore. Oh, that sounded pathetic. Uh, Along with mini essays and other features that will bring you, I believe, a dose of joy each morning. All of it can be had for just $3 per month. And you can subscribe at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. And here's a new offer. If you want a free taste of the blog, get in touch with me. Uh, Contact me at Shane Ryan here on Twitter and I will hook you up. And who knows, maybe you'll get addicted and I will get your money in the end. All right. Enough of that. It is time to hear from the man himself, Mr. Drew McGarry. Segment break. All right, Drew McGarry is in the house. Drew, a big hearty welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> uh, first things first, you are an author once again. Uh,
1: new book, Point B, is out. Uh, how has it gone so far? It's gone well because, I mean, I had to self-publish the book. So I didn't have the standard thing, particularly also because of coronavirus. I didn't have the thing where, like, I got a hardcover uh, you know, copy in the mail well before the release date. And it's not in bookstores right now because nothing's in bookstores right now. And, you know, it hasn't been, you know, it, the day after it was released, it didn't get like reviews, like right away on the spot. Like, you know, like if you release a book through a publisher, you get, uh, you get reviews in Publishers Weekly and in Kirkus, which, which are usually just brutal. Because they hate everything, but at least you get you get you get trade pub notice and and things like that. This didn't have any of that. This was you know, I thought I thought I would be clever and drop it out of the blue like it was a fucking Beyonce album or something one right, day. Right. When I realized that you can only do that if you are Beyonce and I'm not. So <laughs> so it's been a lot of it's been a lot of work in just making sure people know about it and people can buy it. They want to buy it because ultimately. And I've had this happen, you know, this this happens even regardless of who you go through or how you publish a book. There's only so much you can do to sell it, but eventually it, other people have to sell it for you. Other people have to like it and spread the word or review it nicely and things like that. You know, I can only, you know, I can only pimp it so often on my Twitter feed before it's just, it's deaf ears and everybody. I don't have the sort of remarkable jujitsu that like Shea Serrano has selling these books. I. I you know, it it usually falls on making sure other people read it and vouch for it so that that other potential readers uh, have a uh, uh, an objective source to verify so they can go buy it. Yeah,
0: and it's funny to think about because I, I look at your like when you're writing for Deadspin and they had the traffic numbers, it's like you would write a mailbag or a jamboree or something and. I don't know, like 150,000 people might read it in the first day or two. And so you look at that and go, oh man, well, uh, Drew self-published. So if one fifth of those people bought his book, you would probably like make a huge profit and be very happy. But it's kind of frustrating. That's not nearly how it works, is it?
1: No, it's not how it works. Because if people are used to reading you for free, then they have even less incentive to, to pay <laughs> for your work. No, and I don't mean that as like, I mean, as a joke, and I'm not ungrateful for it because I'm a cheap bastard too. So... You know, like I'm, I'm the guy, like I'm a professional journalist, but, and I like small support journalism. Sometimes I hit a paywall on a site. I'm like, ah, the paywall. Nah. Yep. yep. So, uh, so, you know, I'd be, I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I disapproved of people, it's, it's my job to give them a reason to buy the book. So I did. I mean, I have to tell you that I was just so happy to release it. And the day that it came out. Was probably my happiest day of quarantine because I did a live reading on YouTube and everybody was super nice. Yeah, and I just, I, I just loved the book. It was the, it was the first book I finished uh, after I had a brain hemorrhage, and I thought, I thought it was my best book. I still think it's my best book, and, uh, and so I was just happy that it, that it got to see the light of day because I, I loved the characters and the story so much.
0: Yeah, and to talk about it, I read it in about two days, and I loved it. Unlike uh, most TV talk show hosts, I actually did read it. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Drew, it's the first book I've ever read electronically, so uh, that's, I guess, a huge accomplishment yeah. for you. Uh,
1: uh, by the way, by the way, speed is like my paramount goal. If people say I read it in like a day or in two days, then I did my job. It should read fast. It should not – if you're getting bogged down – Like, if it took you two months to read a book, that's its own review of it, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Unless you're like my stepfather who reads like three pages a night of a James Mishner novel and it takes him 10 years to finish it, even though he he absolutely loves it, but he falls asleep. Um, But yeah, no, that's that's a
1: strong dad reading schedule.
0: I really did enjoy it, and I'm not a sci-fi guy, um, but it did. The one thing that's obviously very similar to the post-mortal is it seems like in this book, you started with this big idea, which is teleportation. Uh, In the post-mortal, it was eternal life, being able to live forever. But what I think was really cool about it is that this concept that may seem cool on the surface in the very narrowest sense, you made it your job to go into the details of what a world would actually look like with this. and. To me, it's like, oh wow, that research seems like on one hand it would be invigorating and on the other hand exhausting because there's so much to consider. So maybe if you can tell me how you came to be interested in teleportation and then what the process is like to kind of take that small idea or that very common idea that we've all heard of before and turn it into this 400 page book that is so acutely realized even in like
1: the most minute degrees. I honestly don't remember the exact inspiration for it. someone once told me that that my novels read like a dead spin mailbag question you know in novel form which sounds <laughs> about right for for point B i don't i i remember you know how i conceived of post mortal and sort of the, that moment that happened but point B had a longer gestation period it took about 8 years and it came in a in the form of a lot of other um novels that were that led to dead ends sort sort of novels that i started and got 30,000 words in and then stopped And so I borrowed, you know, a concept from here, a character from there, a scene from there, and then added in uh, the way, you know, the way, the way it really came together is that I, that I set it in my old school where people couldn't teleport. And all of a sudden there was a, uh, a conflict because you wanted everyone else to teleport except our, our heroine Anna Huff. And she wants to teleport and you want her to teleport. And so instantly there's a, there's a hook for the story that you can hang on. Yeah, and that character,
0: Anna Huff, is a uh, teenager, a gay teenage woman, uh, which is sort of, you know, outside your purview (laughs) as a person and outside mine too. To me, it read like very seamless and it seemed like you really treated that with a lot of respect, but it's also a super ballsy choice. Is that something that uh, ever gave you pause? And also, like, what is the reaction, been?
1: It never gave me pause because, like, my whole goal in the beginning was – to write a book with a female protagonist. Because mm-hmm. I hadn't done that, and if you read my other books, you know, there's there's a lot of me uh, in those protagonists. There's a lot of me in Anna, too, but um, but it was time for me to to, to challenge myself and, and go a little bit farther than that. And I wanted to be a female protagonist, and I wanted it to be a teenage love story, and so I was like, okay, well, it's a, if it's a teenage love story Well, she's chasing a boy, well, I didn't want to do that. Well, mm-hmm. oh, boys chasing her, eh, I didn't want to do that. And then I, I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, well who the fuck says I got to be limited to boy-girl this or boy-girl that? Like, there's no uh, there's no law against me. if I. And then all of a sudden, I was like, well, okay. She falls in love with a girl, and who also happens to be her roommate. Okay, that made sense. And the story all fell into place from there. And that was that was kind of it. I didn't have any reservations after that. I think a publisher or two might have had reservations about it, but uh, you know i I had to have faith that you know from from not only my you know my intentions, which always go bad with men, you know that. <laughs> um, but from from what i what I knew over forty three years of life and talking to people and doing you know researching all that stuff, that I was handling it the character in the correct way because i I love Anna Huff. And, you know, I wasn't doing it as like a novelty. Like, I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And in the 90s, like, especially around Tarantino emerges, you know, if you had a a lesbian character, it was sort of like a stunt pulled by like an extremely hetero dude. You know, like,
0: she's got
1: like spiky hair
0: and she's a computer hacker.
1: Right. Which I did not want to do. I just, you know, I just wanted to be, you know, her. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, think it was easy in some respects because, you know, you know, I was running a, a female character, but you know, women aren't fucking space aliens, you know, they're, they're people <laughs> like, yeah, you know yeah, me, yeah. yeah. and, and that's the same also of, of, in terms of sexuality, like it's not, the book is chased in that regard. Like I knew well enough to not get anatomical and end up in like <laughs> yeah. the, the annual, uh, compendium of bad sex uh passages that that get put together i think it's by the guardian or someplace like right, that. right 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 like i knew i knew better than, than to do that And i also knew that love is love anyway you had yeah, and i've been in love and i am in love so it's uh, you know so there's there's a lot of universal human elements that are easy to use in that regard without you know straining and you know and and trying to do the thing where i think i think the mistake a lot of authors have, particularly white authors, particularly white guy authors, is that they think that they can get into the experience of what it is to be this other person in society. Like, Anna is a, a, a young gay woman. The book is not about what it's like to be young and gay that's right. yeah. in America in the future, because I'm not qualified to do that. You know, that's not that's not my purview. It's a, It's a pop fiction book. And so, you know, you know, in terms of building that character, you know, she is who she is, and it's, and I want to handle it as matter of factly as I could because that's the way it should be handled, just in life, and it's the way my kids handle it now. You know, yeah. it's oh, yeah. it's totally different from when I was growing up in the '80s, and everyone was a homophobe, and uh, and that was like the normal thing. Like I showed my I showed my kids Bill and Ted the other day. For the first time, I was like, "You gotta see mm-hmm. it! You gotta see it!" And there's one scene where Bill and Ted hug, and then they recoil from each other, and they go, "Fag!" <laughs> yeah, and I, like, and I had forgotten that scene existed. My wife and I were like, "Ooh!" Yeah, because, like, and my kids were like, "What? That's weird!" Because it was weird to them because they didn't ever live in that world. Even I remember,
0: it's funny because I have this memory of you writing a piece. It must have been for Deadspin from The Hangover where they come to pick up Ed Helms' character and one of them shouts like, paging Dr. Faggot or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, Bradley Cooper does
0: that. Yeah, and that's so much more recent than Bill and Ted. But yeah, it is. It does feel like a century ago almost in the sense that, oh man, they would never put that in a movie, uh, like an equivalent comedy uh, anymore. Never.
1: They would never do that anymore. They shouldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And And it's amazing to think about because The Hangover is not that old of a movie how old is it 10 years old yeah at at most i think 15 years maybe
0: but yeah it's it's super yeah compared to like it's not like an 80s movie it's uh yeah
1: and that was a huge line in the movie and so things have, have evolved at a rapid pace since then but in many ways it's it's where things should have been a long time ago yeah and so when i was writing the book you know i think i've gotten to the point and i've written about this before about you know where i was you know in terms of you know, not long ago, being a blogger who dabbled in easy gay jokes and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, to to where I am now, where it's just not. It's just 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 people being people, and you know, and letting people live their lives. And so I approached the book from the same way, and Eric Anna's character from the same way. She just is who she is, and that's and that's that. And there's nothing else to it. There's a couple of uh, allusions to uh, homophobia in the book because. 10 years from now, there will still be homophobia. Yeah. right. But other than that, I wanted to keep it as, as straight ahead as I possibly could. Cause I think that was the most respectful thing to do because honestly, like I grew up stories like this belonged to dudes like most of the time. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, and there's no reason why those should be the exclusive provenance of guys. They, you know, there's no reason why, why a girl can't have the story or a gay girl. Well, I think one of the best compliments I can
0: pay is that the main thing that came through to me from an emotional angle from Anna was the incredible intensity, which obviously you experienced and I experienced it, of how you feel about love uh, when you were that age. And it's... It's crazy. Like you could fall in love with somebody over an hour and obsess about them for the next year, which is not something, not a headspace I would ever go to now, thank God. But uh, it was like a trip back in time. I think you captured that emotion so perfectly. Uh, and it's something I hadn't thought about in years, but it allowed me to sort of reconnect with similar feelings I had had when I was a sophomore in high school, pining over you know, some senior girl who had absolutely never noticed me. But day after day, like watching her on the, <laughs> on the quad in our high school. Um, and it sounds like that was kind of a big uh, goal of you to hit that emotional mark
1: yeah yeah it feels good to remember that shit it does it It does weird it's weird it makes but it it's so intense but so so epic and so big it feels so big and and so important to you particularly at the time and there's um you know this this doesn't this doesn't sound this this isn't gonna come out right but it, it doesn't it doesn't feel good to have that fade. Um, Like I I want things to be that intense. And also I look, I enjoy looking back on it, particularly now, like that we're in quarantine. Like I watched Outer Banks with my kid and with, with my wife and it's a teenage love story. And it's totally trashy in, in, in all the good ways. (laughs) Yeah. But the love story is like totally conjures all those feelings all over again. And I fucking loved it. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and I just it made me feel young again, made me feel vital again. And I remember I was writing the Postmortal and the Hike, and the two parts of those books that I liked writing the most were parts that were uh when the when the characters were teenagers and had these really intensive teenage feelings. And I was like, why don't I make the whole fucking book out of that? So that's what I That's did. right. That's right. Um and then talking about the story a
0: little bit, I was reading on um I'll get the name wrong. Is it was an unnamed temporary sports blog where the Deadspin guys got back together for a little bit? That is exactly. I nailed right. it. Great. Um, but you were, you mentioned that it's not a dystopian book. Uh, however, reading it, it does reflect our current political realities in the sense that you have some very evil rich people, some horrible white supremacists yes. like teen boys who you know have their equivalent of the four chan or eight chan website, uh, and so it's almost like yeah, all of this seems there's futuristic elements obviously, but you know, spiritually, it seems very much like our time. And so I kind of disagree with you a little and was like, I think it is dystopian, but also that's just our reality in a sense. Uh, What was it like navigating that, you know, writing about something that felt realistic and appropriately dark, but trying to infuse hope and and make hope. I think the emotion that you come away with at the end.
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that I had already written a book that really was dystopian, uh, particularly in its storyline Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't want to write a book where the fucking world ends at the end of it. Like again, yeah, because yeah. it just, it just would've been doing the same, the same shit. And also, if people could teleport with their phones, that would be really cool, right? It would be awesome. Yes. And uh, and yes, it would have downsides, and the book explores all of that, and includes all of the, you know, it includes a lot of the elements that are that make our current situation dystopian, and our current situation is very dystopian. Um, and I, you know, I had no choice, but to reflect that if it was going to be recognizable as a, as a world. Um, but, you know, but to me, dystopian means that like, it's, it means it's the apocalypse Yeah, it's hopeless no, in a way. Yeah. So no apocalypse in this book, and also ultimately, you know, the main focus is on Anna and her love for Lara Kirsch. And so it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the world outside is the setting, but it's not a story of the world in the way that the post-mortal was this, you know, in the post-mortal, John Farrell's life echoes the trajectory of the world, which is, you know, you know, we're talking about curves, you know, goes really high and then goes really, really, really low. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is different. This is about a a girl in love trying to salvage love uh, in a world. She doesn't have much control over that is good and bad, just as this world is good and bad right now, Um, but has this one tool that she can use, uh, to, you know, to to get love because love is that important.
0: And then on the other side, you have Jason Kirsch, who I think is uh, one of the most terrifying characters I've ever read because you managed to combine this sort of heartless, profit, greedy thing of a CEO with the uh, the sort of uh, social views of the New Zealand shooter or somebody like that. And <laughs> it, and again, yeah, it creates this awful person. And but I was thinking, I was like, you know what, Drew, it must be nice that Drew got to get inside the head and imagine the worst shit he could think of rather than spending all day just being scared of these people or seeing them as aliens. It must have been cool to almost reckon with it and be able to go to like the darkest spot you could think of with this character.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the power of fiction is that, yeah. uh, you know, there's there's obviously real life inspira- in, inspiration in some of the characters, but you are the little god of the book and you can you can do anything you want with those characters and you can have them get their comeuppance if you that makes you feel better and stuff like that. And you have power over that world. I have no power over this world. Like I can (laughs) tweet at the president that he fucking blows. It's not going (laughs) to change anything. Uh, But within the world of the book, you have all encompassing power. And that's very, very nice. And the other thing is that, you know, frankly, there's, you know, some of my deepest uh, psychological flaws are also in Jason's character. And, uh, you know, that's a, you know, have, being able to put that into uh, a character is freeing in certain ways. It's it's a bit of a cover, like anyone who wanted to say, that, you know, you're using a you're using a character to cover your own flaws. Is that's a worthy criticism? Yeah, but also, right. uh, you know, it allows you to explore those those flaws in a more objective way than if you're just writing a nonfiction book and saying, "Well, I'm a bad man with bad thoughts, and I'm very naughty." When and <laughs> yeah. that's. That's when it gets uh, overbearing and people roll their eyes and and slam the page shut.
0: Yeah, no, and this character is not like the Joker. It's not like someone you vicariously enjoy. It's someone who is horrifying in the truest sense of that word that it it disturbs you and you want to see him die on every single page (laughs) of the book.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's what you want out of a villain. The, The thing is with villains is, and this is a, this is a horrible take, but like, our whole thing with villains in this century, like pop culture villains, is that they're anti-heroes. So, like, that's right. Yeah, the the villain is usually the hero. Like, uh, you know, Tony Soprano, the Joker, all that shit. Walter White, right? Yeah, Walter White, and it uh, I think it distracts people from real villainy, uh, which is uh, n- which involves people who are not quite as interesting, and whose contrasts are not terribly pronounced, who just suck. So. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it helps in pop culture if we have characters and villains who you do not root for or identify with and who you very much want to see die. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was that was part of the reason that that Jason's on the page,
0: and I would almost go further and say that the fact that there are so many anti-heroes allows people in real life to imbue these just genuinely shitty and slightly more boring people with the qualities of the anti-hero. So it might actually have this weird reverse effect where we let these awful people off the hook. So, and I guess in your small way, you're a hero for for reversing that paradigm.
1: Well, yes, yeah, I mean, but no, that's 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 really accurate. Like we uh, we were talking about, I was in the uh, Deadspin Next Patriot Slack with Albert Bernico and we were talking about the new Capone movie that's coming out. Um, it's already getting, it's already supposed to be fucking wild. Like it's got Tom Hardy shitting his pants at like the front and the back for some reason. Has <laughs> wow. Al Capone. And Albert was like, you know, this is ultimately like, you know, Al Capone is ultimately a stupid and uninteresting person and people are trying to make him more interesting than he is. And that's true of a lot of stuff. Like, Like there's always that reflex people have To be like, oh, there's more, you know, there's, there's more to this person, you know, there's, oh, there's some sort of background, right? There's always like an origin story. Oh, there's some sort of background that, you know, that makes Donald Trump so, so, so awful and so horrible. Mm -hmm. When really, he was just awful from the fucking start. Yeah, he's just a selfish guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's just a prick. And so, you know, that's, there, there needs to be characters who are a bit, a bit simpler than that. Doesn't mean they have to be two dimensional. Yeah, they can still be they can still be fully fleshed out. They can also be terrible. <laughs> that's
0: right. Yeah, and you know it was funny because there was a point in the middle when you had a um, uh, I think it was the text of a speech that Jason gave, and he said something about climate change. And I did have a moment where I was like, Oh yeah, I wonder if it's all worth it, <laughs> as bad as he is, the whole teleportation right. thing. I want it might all be justified if it saves the planet. Uh, and then I that's, cons- that's right. Quickly started hating him again. But there, I did have that thing of like, Oh yeah, maybe it's uh, there is a redeeming side to him by accident, almost.
1: And that was that was a deliberate thing where where, you know, I, I said if there was if there was teleportation, there would obviously be a lot of positive side effects that would be the opposite of dystopian, which would be utopian.
0: And so those <laughs> right. elements
1: had to be pronounced in there so that it wasn't just it was so you weren't reading like a Cormac McCarthy book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um I do want to ask too quickly before we get into sports matters, uh, just about your own political yeah. evolution. I'm somebody who's read you for, I, I think it's got to be 15 years at this point. Um, and I didn't ever peg you in the beginning, not that you were ever like a conservative Republican or anything, but you seem like a pretty moderate guy to me. I remember when the Gawker union thing uh, came about, you kind of had mixed feelings. Now it seems like when I read your political stuff, you're basically where I am, which is kind of a Bernie, a Bernie bro radicalized. Yeah. 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 You've been radicalized. And I mean, that's clear in this book. It's clear in all the different writing you do for medium and for GQ and things like that. Um, you know, look, it's its not that uncommon a trajectory, but I do think it'd be interesting for people to hear from you uh, how it happened and, and how you got to where you are now.
1: Well, I always figured, I mean, I was annoyingly liberal since college, maybe even high school. And I frankly figured I would get more conservative as life went on. Right. You know, the standard thing where like everyone's liberal until until they get a paycheck and their taxes are out. Yeah, like if
0: you're conservative when you're young, you have no heart, but if you're a liberal when you're old, you have no brain. Yeah.
1: I figured I'd get older and crankier, uh, you know, the way that, the way that, uh, it just feels like a natural trajectory for a lot of people, that that they just get older and therefore more conservative, because the stats show that older people tend to be more conservative. Right. Um, But I did not, uh, I did not figure that Donald Trump would become president, and I didn't (laughs) uh, figure, That I've become more liberal than I was in college, um, in the face of, you know, a a country that is just a fucking lost cause, you know. Like it's just yeah, there's just, you know, nothing, you know, every time I can't even really look at like Twitter anymore during the day. I definitely can't look at it at night because it's just so enervating and just so miserable. And there's just no, there's no common sense involved at all and so you know i i i feel like i'm screaming at everybody just to have a fucking brain uh and and have good things in this country that everyone would would like if they had them but that's not the country i live in it's just it's just completely gone off the rails into eternal irrationality and so that's it's frustrating uh and I, it gets tiring and it gets fatiguing, but I, you know, I, 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 naturally moved into doing a lot of political commentary for GQ. Right. When Trump got elected, uh, because it just is so, it's become essentially the only thing, especially now there's no fucking sports. Like it's just, this is it. Yeah. This it, is, yeah. It yeah. is the culture, which is awful. Um, but it's, you know, really sort of the only thing to think about also when, when you get, older and you have bills and you have kids, you have no choice but think about political things because they impact you directly. If you're a teenager, which is why I wrote a teenage love story, you don't have to give a shit about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, you escape your kids. Uh-, <laughs> right. uh and then and then when I when I left GQ and my contract ran out, the people at Jen at Medium were like, we'd like you to do only political commentary for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was like, that's fucking hilarious. Yeah, of course I would do that. Yeah. And so that's what I so, so you say I've gotten more political during the course of my career, part of it was happenstance. But now it's very much deliberate because it's my literal fucking job.
0: And this may be sort of a cheesy follow-up or sort of like a pat question, but you mentioned you had a huge medical uh, catastrophe, having a brain aneurysm and spending a lot of time in the hospital. Has your perspective politically changed since then or creatively? Or, you know, now you have a ton of space. How long ago was it, Drew? Was it more than a year ago?
1: Yeah, I had my hemorrhage December uh, 5th. 2018 it was it was actually december 6th because it was like after midnight but december 6th is my brother's birthday so we always say it's december 5th
0: so yeah so you wrote a great piece about it and i'll link that when i post the podcast but now that even more time has passed uh what has changed i mean in your worldview has has it altered things are you pretty much back where you were before what's the difference
1: no i think the problem was and i'm writing a book about it is that i spent a lot of time trying to get back to where I was and trying to essentially act as if this never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't happen that way. There's a lot about me that's unchanged. Like my writing is still the same. My political view is, yeah, I'm probably more liberal, although uh, I don't think that's because I have brain damage. I think that's just because, (laughs) I think think the world gets so much worse on a daily basis. I have no choice but to drift politically in the other direction. Yeah. uh, but in other ways i was i have long-term physical and mental ramifications from that brain hemorrhage that i didn't want to reckon with at first or that i brooded over at first mm-hmm. and so i had to learn to stop brooding over them how to live with the the brain and the body that i now have and how to interact with uh family members who were awake for all of this remember i was asleep i was in a coma for two weeks so i wasn't around for all the bad parts they were and i had to remember that and all the trauma that they went through because i have no recollection of any of that and i i you know i kind of bypassed the trauma of that moment because i don't remember the accident happening i don't remember almost choking to death on my own vomit. I don't remember almost dying, like, cause you know, it was, I was, I should have died. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but my, my family was awake for all that. And so what they went through was very, very, very painful and stressful. And, you know, for me to, you know, just get up, you know two weeks later and start bitching because I'm half deaf now Uh, you know, it doesn't do them much favor. So it's been yeah, it's been a it's been a long haul in that regard. Uh and it's been different in that regard. But I think uh that I have and I that I and my family have settled into where we are now. Relatively comfortably, of course, I survived all this, and now everyone's fucking dying of coronavirus. So that was my reward. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. My reward for surviving a fucking brain (laughs) hemorrhage. Yeah, welcome to the world.
0: Uh, That's like I saw the thing with Kenny Rogers when he died. They're like, that is the definition of knowing when to fold them. Uh, Yeah, yeah, for real. (laughs) But but here we are, and uh, yeah, you know, I just I was reading one of your recent uh, political posts on Medium, and they range. I mean, you wrote one that was hysterical uh, called "Coronavirus Made a Big Mistake Invading the Greatest Goddamn." Country on Earth that uh, was great satire, but in this day and age, almost indiscernible from actual like a conservative uh, trying to you know strap on his AR-15 and go go fight a virus. Um, but you write a lot of serious stuff too, and you know talking about the the primary uh, one line that stuck out to me. You wrote, I should have known that we are a nation of deaf ears and that voters could agree with everything Bernie had to say while simultaneously refusing to vote for him. And I don't want to ask about the specific primary or anything. But uh, you mentioned before the sense that our world is broken. uh, And that line in particular made me think that, okay, maybe Drew is understandably in a dark headspace. I know I am. Uh, Are you feeling
1: uh, hopeless uh, with things as they stand? No, I don't. I'm not. I'm not in a dark headspace yeah. certainly i'm certainly better off than most people and i mean that objectively speaking i have a house i have money like you know we mm-hmm. we don't have to uh, i don't have to go to work uh i don't have to leave the house to work in order to continue existing right. the way so many people are being forced to do right now yeah um so I'm I'm very 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 fortunate in in that regard. I can sort of stay in my own bubble, uh, and you know. So the so only way I look at the news that I obviously despair, and I'd like to see my parents again at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but you know, I I think it's I think I'm pretty much you know I'm pretty much able to compartmentalize and be happy with my own life. Uh, as it stands apart from the world, like this is a really easy thing to do when you're a teenager, is your world is the world, and whatever's going on outside, fuck it, who cares? No what none of that shit matters. That like gets harder to do when you get grow, when you grow up, and it gets harder to do because of the internet too, because with the internet, everybody knows everything all the time about what's going on constantly, and, yeah. and it's hard to escape from that. Um, You know, and I, you know, I can say, oh, you got to turn your phone off, but I I look at my phone all the fucking time. Yeah. So I'm as bad as anybody else. And I don't want to turn my phone off, but I do have to adjust and remember that the only things within my control are the things within my immediate vicinity. So, you know, and, and to be grateful and mindful of those things, because the outside world is just going to be insane, no matter no matter what I do, you know, no matter, <laughs> yes, you, know, yeah. I, you know, I can vote and I can speak my mind, which I do with with great zeal and with great profanity. <laughs> well, but, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately, it's it's going to, you know, ultimately, I, I don't have control over the result of that. But I do have what I have here. And that life is, of course, the, the bulk of my life. And, and that's what's what what's important. Well, you just mentioned something that I want to ask about
0: if I can do one more broad Drew question here. Again, as as somebody who's read you for such a long time, I think you more than anybody else I know have an openness uh, in the sense that you will write about anything you wrote about uh, your brain hemorrhage, you wrote about your DUI, you've written about your bladder, your family, you know, it goes on and on. And Somehow you do it in a way that doesn't read like an obnoxious exo Jane confessional. You do it in a really funny, honest way. It's something I aspire to do, but I feel limits even when I do it. I feel a point where I'm like, oh, fuck that. I'm not telling people that. Uh, and you go beyond. You go beyond that in a way I don't think anybody else does. Um and the question I've always wanted to ask you is, was this something natural that just felt like the right thing to do for you? Or did you have like a moment uh, early on where you thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to put it all out there and I'm never going to hold back. And I know you do hold back. Of course you do. But you see what I mean, that you're just really going to be as open as possible.
1: Um, I just always felt that way. Because first of all, I have a big mouth. Even if you <laughs> yeah. like my parents will not tell me. I'll tell my brother and sister certain things. They won't tell me certain things because they don't just go blabbing about it to everybody. (laughs) Right, right. So I I just have a natural big mouth, but also I was raised on like Richard Pryor and on on other comedians like that whose uh, main source of comedy and their main source of getting the audience's attention was in their vulnerability and in their willingness to be to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that always, 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 always appealed to me from like age 10 and never stopped. And so I always was I always gravitated towards candidness. I think it's I think it's honestly, I think it's the it's it's all turned sour in this decade uh because uh Trump it, you know, presents himself as an avatar of this kind of candidness, even though he lies all the time. Right. Yes. Uh, and you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of, he says what I'm thinking sort of stuff. No, he's, yeah, he is an avatar for
0: authenticity, right. In a way that right. in a bullshit way, whereas well, you were before him in an internet way that was very sincere and always felt legitimate.
1: Right. I, cause I always felt like the, you know, the more willing you were to put yourself out there, the more people would connect with you. And if people, if people shoot you down and make fun of you and all that stuff, well, they're gonna make fun of you anyway. So yeah. So, you know, I, I it just it just made more sense to me uh to just put myself out there and and not hold much back because it's just it's freer that way. We just feel freer than being, you know, a some Midwestern asshole who's just stoic <laughs> all the time and never says shit.
0: And it's funny that the person who does this, uh, you, comes from Minnesota, which, you know, right. at least stereotypically goes against uh, <laughs> what you would expect. Right.
1: Well, well, The well, the thing is that my my parents are from Chicago. OK. Uh, and uh, and I was not born in Minnesota. We moved there when I was like eight. And so and if you if you move to eight, admit, if you move to Minnesota at age eight, you're already an outsider there. That's how uh, provincial they are. Forever. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and so I grew up around, you know, sort of all these very nice people, uh, you know, who, who were not very rude. And yeah. it made me only want to be more rude. Just, yeah. And we need more rudeness in the world, right? More like good, honest, like forthright rudeness than the rudeness that's going around
0: Yeah. Well, and that's a great transition to Deadspin, because I thought that was one of the few sites that sort of filled that vacuum. Um, And I did want to ask, you know, everybody knows the story by now. Venture Capital took over, had no idea what Deadspin was about or why it was so beloved. They ruined it. And it got to a point where you guys had to leave. Um, But I do want to talk about that moment. Was it a pretty easy decision by that point once they screwed over Barry that you guys were just eh, almost like your hands are tied, like you have to leave at this point? Or was it was it harder than that?
1: It was hard. We all we all quit over a period of about three days. I was in the second wave, so mm-hmm. I was on the second day after everyone had quit. I um, we all knew sort of in the months leading up to it, particularly after Megan Greenwell left uh, and was essentially forced out, um, even though she, she she now works at Wired and, and is is on her feet. Yeah. Um, we all knew that uh, that they were going to get us somehow. That they were just going this wasn't going to get any better. but we kept our nose down. we just kept blogging the way we always had through you know the usual shit storms we had when we were at Gawker and we were at Univision mm-hmm. whoever the fuck owned us didn't matter. We would just keep working and, and hope that we were just it would just the storm would pass over but it was clear it wasn't gonna pass over. And when they fired Barry, uh, it was like okay, well, this is serious now because Barry, along with me, and Tom Lay had been at the site longer than anybody else. Yeah. And so when Barry was gone, it was like, well, you know, it was like a vital organ was torn out. Uh, but also I, you know, I had brain damage and I have three kids and a wife and, you know, and that was the source of our health insurance. So I was not, you know, I had always operated under the, the, uh, the rule that you don't quit a job unless you have another one lined up, ready to go. Sure. I did yeah. not have another job lined up ready to go. I didn't, wasn't particularly interested in paying COBRA. But um, but the next day, uh, Tom Lay said he was quitting, and uh, and when Tom said he was quitting, that's when I was like, I have no choice. I had to quit. And mm-hmm. so even though we all quit on mass, uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a scheme. It wasn't all of us sitting there in a room being like, okay, so at four o'clock you're going to quit, and then Warren's going to quit half an hour afterward. It just it was just an organic thing where we all realized um of our own accord that we couldn't keep doing what we wanted to do if we couldn't do it together and so the more people that left the less the rest of us remaining wanted to stay Mm -hmm. and uh and so that's that's really how it how it happened uh i wish that they hadn't fucked the site i wish we were still there and doing our jobs the way that we could have done but you know, it, it was—it's clear now. In respect, they were never going to let that happen, and so I'm glad that we—that I made the decision that I did. I don't have any regrets about it. Uh, I just wish the site still existed as it was.
0: Yeah, one thing that um, I didn't think I would realize, but I have, is there's an importance to things like that being on one site. So, for instance, you write now for Medium, you write for Vice. The stuff is as good as ever, but you know, unless I see you tweet the articles out. Because I like reading you so much, I seek them out, you know, maybe once a week. I go say, Oh, yeah, I got to go check what Drew wrote at Medium or at Vice. Uh, but I can miss like a Drew McGarry piece in a way that I never would have at Deadspin because I constantly went to Deadspin.com. Now, I still read your stuff because I like reading you so much, but other people who are also great there, I will miss their pieces completely. Uh, even though they may, like you said, a lot of people have jobs at other places, some don't. Uh, but yeah, it's incredibly sad to lose a central hub like that. And, it has knock on effects. Like it almost doesn't matter if everybody gets another job somewhere else, something special is lost nonetheless.
1: Yeah. I think we, I think we feel that, you know, cause we're all sort of floating around the diaspora. We, um, someone did set up a Twitter feed called undead spin that tweets out all, all of the expatriates work whenever right. it, uh, the second it comes out. And that's been a, a good hub, um, for our collective work. But yeah, of course, we, we missed the site, and particularly right now, um, which sounds weird because there are no sports right now, um, but there are sports abroad. Korean baseball is on, and it's it's good. I liked watching it.
0: Yeah, I read your piece on that. I was going to ask you about that later. That was and, uh, <laughs> that was the classic true piece. I really enjoyed he, that.
1: And uh, there just has been a gaping void, not only in the coverage of existing sports, particularly abroad but in how uh, the North American leagues are handling a return to sports, which is clumsy mm-hmm. and how ESPN is covering that, which varies from just sort of mouth PC to non-existent, you know, whatsoever. So, so uh, it feels like, it feels like there's a, a big, big void that needs to be filled and, and, and we're all endeavoring to fill it the best we can, but you know, there's pock marks all over journalism right now. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it shows right now during this crisis, because every single media outlet right now should be saying that the president has let, you know, 75,000 people die and is a yeah, piece yeah. of shit who should die in prison, but that's not what's happening.
0: Yeah. And I talked with Will about the current, the current quote unquote dead spin and how just neutered it is, even though they're trying to pretend that they still have teeth. Um Now, When Deadspin collapsed, Drew, I expected or what I thought was coming was that you were going to start something like a a Patreon or something like that, maybe with David Roth and Albert or, or maybe with a couple other people. And the reasons I thought that are, number one, because I think you in particular have the following where you could make that something that could be your full time job. And I may be wrong about that. But the second reason is just that I thought you guys would be seeking whatever kind of freedom you have so that even if you did start a new site together somewhere else, you wouldn't be subject to the same shitty whims uh, of, of internet media that everybody is. Did that
1: ever enter your mind to do something like that? Yeah, it did it did. I had reasons that I didn't do it. Um, I mean there's a possibility that I still may yeah but um, but behind the scenes, you know I you know I've been working on you know just trying to get a job. Um, because I trust that a bit more than relying on a Patreon model, even though, you know, I think every, I think sort of the golden goose is out there for everyone who hears, you know, like how much like the Chapo guys make exactly, every month, but that's not necessarily what's, what's real for, for other people. That includes me, you know, that includes me as a guy. Cause you know, like we talked about with books, you know, I've tried to get, readers to pay for shit before Mm -hmm. and even though even though uh even though my my books have sold very well they didn't go to number one or anything like that right right uh so you know so so you know i have that sort of skittishness about it uh among among other things because just it just it just wasn't quite right given the potential of other things that i think i could be doing or will be doing
0: Yeah, so that's interesting to me because, I, yeah, in my head, I'm like, well, this is Drew's wheelhouse. And not to press the point too much, but I'm like, this is, you know, internet writing is why people follow him. So in in that sense, I thought it would be different from the book. And I was like, man, you know, why isn't he just – he could get a full-time salary just from other people and wouldn't have to worry about the assholes ever again. But I suppose also doing that is limiting in a way that – your exposure is very much limited to the people who already follow you. Of course you can get new followers, but it's different than being employed by a big website that can spread your name out uh, to more people too.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was the thing about Desmond is that Desmond had an audience. Like the audience was, was vast, but also like it was the right audience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, I could make money by starting a newsletter or something like that. And that was, you know, it's nice. And you're sort of, in, but you're also in a little bubble and you're not, you know, frankly, I you know you I would I would miss the bullhorn like it was a good bullhorn to yeah, have, and yeah. and I want that back, and you know, and figuring trying to figure out ways to get it back. Cool. And then let's see if we should
0: uh, ask a little bit about real sports here. You, uh, you stayed up late to watch the Korean baseball. Is it organization? Is that what the O stands for? <laughs> KBO? Uh, yes. KBO. And you, it seems like you really liked it and I'll link that piece as well, but yeah, I, I haven't done it yet. And I keep meaning to, at least to uh, DVR it, but uh good experience watching, uh, watching Korean baseball, even with nobody in the
1: stands. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. The Nobody in the stands thing is not like I, like I wrote about, first of all, if you watch an MLB game during the regular season, it's not as if empty stands are an uncommon sight. Uh, the other thing was that the ambient noise in the stadium, at least when I was watching uh, the LG Twins and the NC Dinos, like there was enough noise within the stadium just from ambient city noise nearby and 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 and, te- and teams hooting and hollering from the dugout and uh, and mascots doing whatever the fuck they do. Like there was <laughs> enough of that to make it feel comfortable and. And relatively normal, and I was just so happy to see baseball again. I, I didn't really give a shit that there, you know, that there were there were a couple of, uh, you know, strings attached. Yeah, and you, I never
0: thought of you as a baseball guy. I know you've watched it before, but it sounds like just the experience of seeing real sports was almost like a, a religious one too.
1: Yeah, like that, and like like when like Bundesliga comes back this weekend. Oh I'm hell yeah! All over that, and like yeah. if they do the NFL in empty stadiums. Like I'll say, it's irresponsible, and and that they're, <laughs> that, that, you know, and that it'll be aborted the second a player gets COVID and all that shit. I'll totally watch it. I can't wait to watch it.
0: Cool. Well, Drew McGarry, thank you very much for joining me again. And uh, yeah, stay safe, there, my friend. Thanks, Shane.
1: Segment break.
0: Well, what a delightful man, Drew McGarry. Drew, thank you again for joining us. Thank you all for listening. I think you'll agree with me. It's a very good thing that Drew did not pass away of a brain hemorrhage. Uh, yeah, hey, look, if you liked it, uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. What else is there? Spotify does podcasts now. Um, Google Play, is that another one? There's a bunch. There's a bunch. You go out where podcasts are found and you will find this one. And look, I know I shouldn't say it again. I said it before, but I'm going to because I can't stop myself. ApocalypseSports.net is where you can go to see other podcasts and other bits of writing I do. And if you like that kind of thing and you want it every single day, uh, Patreon.com slash Apocalypse Sports is where you can subscribe for only $3 a month. So, look, you don't have to. I'm not going to force you. Probably legally, I couldn't. I'm looking into it, but I don't think I can. But I do appreciate the listen. And for those of you who are new and came to hear Drew, well, thanks for stopping by. All right, everybody, for God's sake, be careful out there. I love you. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.